0: Thank you, Kyle. Why don't we pray, like that song, and before our study, because the Lord knows we need His help. Let's pray together. Father, we thank You for just another Wednesday evening, uh, to come and study Your Word, to rest in Jesus, to learn from Him, and to be fed from His hand. We pray that You'd give us ears to hear and eyes to see what You would have for us to learn, Lord, in Your holy Scripture, that unchanging truth that You've condescended to give to us, Lord, what a privilege it is to know Your heart and mind. God, open our eyes now and 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 not just help us to understand, but um, give us grace to receive what You have. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I invite you to take your Bibles there uh, and make your way back to Psalm 119, specifically uh, if, I, if I figured out the numbers right, hopefully. We're in verses 137 to 144. If Danny preached this section last time, just start with, don't, actually don't say anything. I'm just going to keep going and we'll do it again. No, I'm pretty sure this is where we'll be. The Sade stanza. And I'm going to need you guys to lock in right at the get-go here, um, because I want to do something a little bit different up front tonight. Here in a moment, I'm going to read this stanza in its entirety, but I want you, what I want you to do is, not what you maybe typically do, and this is an accusation when, you know, preachers get up and read the passage at the beginning, I know what the temptation is sometimes, like, well, he's going to walk through that, I'm just going to, you know, sit here and... um, other things, but I want, you to, I want you to focus because as you follow along and listen, I want you to take note of any particular words or ideas that are repeated in this section as I read. Okay, I think you can do that because uh, I'm going to ask you about them afterwards, okay? So, this is like an open book pops quiz, Um. So, any, anything that's repeated that you can take note of here, okay, beginning 137 down to 144, and then uh, we'll see if you can get the answers that I'm looking for. Righteous are You, O Lord, and upright are Your judgments. You have commanded Your testimonies in righteousness and exceeding faithfulness, My zeal has consumed me because my adversaries have forgotten your words. Your word is very pure, therefore your servant loves it. I am small and despised, yet I do not forget your precepts. Your righteousness is an everlasting righteousness, and your law is truth. Trouble and anguish have come upon me, yet your commandments are my delight. Your testimonies are righteous forever. Give me understanding that I may live. All right, what 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 did you see? What is repeated maybe most in these eight verses? Anybody? There should be one that's pretty obvious. Righteousness. You got it. All right, there. Look, everything after this is after that. I'm just glad you got that one. Um, yeah, right? Most obvious, you should have noticed the repetition of the words righteous or righteousness. I underlined them there for you up on the slides. Um, Even the related term upright in verse 137, right, is all related. It's that same idea and theme. And this is the major theme then of this particular stanza. It is the glue that binds these verses together and it makes sense because... The Hebrew word for righteous or righteousness begins with this very letter of the Hebrew alphabet, tzadeh, and it's the first word found in 137, 142, and 144, okay? Now it gets a little bit more difficult. Any other words did you see that were repeated? Anybody? There's, there, I'll give you a hint. There's one in the middle section that has nothing underlined in it yet. John? Forgotten. Forgotten. Isn't that interesting? In that middle section, those three verses, maybe you noticed, or maybe you're just now noticing from my slide because it's underlined and bolded. (laughs) Well, first, the glaring omission of righteousness in the middle three verses, along with the repetition of this word forgotten, 139 and 141. So, think about this. In the middle section here, I think the psalmist is deliberately highlighting the problem that we have in this present experience in this fallen world, right? He's showing us just how controversial God's righteousness is among men in our present age. Here, His conviction and commitment to God's righteousness is tested and tried, in, an, in, in a world that is run amuck with evil, while God is indeed right and righteous, as the first and the second sort of chunks do assert and affirm, in all that He does, the point here in the middle is that we experience, as we experience suffering, persecution, as we witness evil unanswered, the world calling good evil and evil good, it can be difficult sometimes, can it? To believe that God is just in all His dealings. And so, that's that middle section. Um, Let me see, well, there's one more, actually, that's not as obvious, so I'll just give it to you. Notice, finally, as the psalmist then passes through the furnace of that middle section, and he merges sort of on the other side, down there at the bottom, the last three verses, his convictions, he kind of lands on his feet. Notice in that third and last section how the psalmist doubles down on what he said in the first two verses about God's righteousness. In other words, what's reaffirmed and repeated is, First, notice the yellow, that God is righteous. Second, in that blue, that God's testimonies are righteous. But do you see what's added in that last section that's not in that first? That idea of the fact that they are righteous forever. Those are actually the same word, everlasting and forever. It's the same term, Um. Means unto eternity. The psalmist then ends by making this point and highlighting the duration of God's righteous works and word. The righteousness of God is an everlasting righteousness, it is an eternal righteousness, it is, an, it is a righteousness that will go on forever and never change. This is true no matter what we might be tempted to conclude from our experience. So, in, in light of those observations, and um, here's the outline we're going to work with tonight. If you're taking notes, we're going to seek to establish three truths about the righteousness of God from this passage. You see them there. The righteousness of God is essential. I'll explain, explain all of these as we walk through them. The righteousness of God is controversial in that middle portion there and the righteousness of God is eternal and you see the progression from past eternity past it's anchored in God's character it's essential it's who he is that you see the controversy as we think about God's righteousness now in the present age and then he's going to land in the future to declare that God's righteousness indeed does extend for eternity future. Okay, so that's your outline. I'll just leave that up then. Let's consider first with me, look at verses 137 and 138, how the righteousness of God is first essential. The righteousness of God is essential. That is to say, righteousness is God's essence. It is who He is. It's not something outside of Him that He's measured against and described by. It is who He is. Notice how the psalmist says this, righteous are you, O Yahweh, and upright are your judgments. You've commanded your testimonies in righteousness and exceeding faithfulness. I want you to notice here first that the character of God is righteous. You see that first line, righteous Are you, O Yahweh? It is a declaration of who God is in and of Himself. And it's actually a declaration without a verb in the original text, literally, righteous, you, Yahweh. In other words, here the psalmist declares that righteousness is not simply, think about this, what God does, but rather it is who He is. God is righteousness, like God is love. Righteousness is His essential nature, hence it is original to Himself. He's the source of all righteousness and all that is right in this world. He's the standard of perfect justice because it is who He is. It's His character. By the way, the word for righteous here, as, as, as one Old Testament scholar reminds us, essentially has the meaning of, coris- of that which corresponds to a standard. And so, here we find out that God Himself, listen, is that standard. God is the standard of righteousness. There's no other standard of righteousness to which God can be compared and measured and declared then to be righteous. He Himself in Himself is the very righteous standard by which everything else is measured and determined, right or wrong. And as a parent of five children, uh, I seem always to be finding myself in the position of having to declare who's right and who's wrong in a given situation, you get, get they come up, I hear the little footsteps coming up from the basement, and it's like, I already know. There's a decision to be had, and I must declare <laughs> righteousness from my fatherly throne. What is fair and what is unfair, and, and sometimes it's not that clear, but in my house, I get to decide, and yet... I may actually be wrong at times, (laughs) but in God's universe, think about this, He is never wrong. God is always right, always, because He Himself is righteous. It is His character. He is essentially righteous. Therefore, secondly, still under that First point. Notice that the psalmist adds then next in the second line because the character of God is righteous, the conclusions of God are also righteous. Notice what he says in the second line: "And upright are your judgments." You see the logic there, right? If In other words, here it is, if the character of God is righteous, then it only follows that the conclusions that He comes to are righteous too. And if God is righteous in all His person, then He must be righteous in every decision. After all, a perfectly just judge always renders the right verdict. And, and that is what the psalmist is referring to you with this word, judgments. God's judgments refer to those matters which He has decided and settled Himself in His own eternal mind. It's His evaluation of things. It's His determination, declaration, decision. It's His judgments. It's what He's decided. These are His divine decrees. They are His just conclusions as judge of all the earth, This is courtroom terminology of rendering a verdict and issuing a sentence. Listen, whenever God gives a ruling about something, if He swings His gavel from His heavenly bench, it is always upright. It is always just. And by the way, the word here for upright is just a slightly different term than the one that we've seen repeated throughout the stanza. It's a synonym, however, that has the nuance Of that which is uh, straight and level. I love Hebrew terms, right? They're very picturesque. And you say, well, how does that equal upright? Well, it's that which is straight and level in contrast to that which is crooked or uneven or imbalanced. In fact, often in the courts of law, we've seen those images of ancient scales, right? That are perfectly balanced on both sides to represent justice and equity. Because, why, uneven scales meant that a decision was made from personal bias or favoritism or some kind of injustice. In fact, even back then, dishonest vendors would often secretly weight their scales in order to rip people off. And so, this is the imagery now applied to God's judgments. You see, here's the point. Nothing that God decides is ever out of balance. No conclusion that He comes to is ever crooked. His verdicts are never wrong or unfair. His consequences never too severe. His decrees are always right. His outcomes are always evenly, and properly weighed. And so Calvin can write, there is not any one of the judgments of God which is not right, because as Plumer says, they are the transcript of His character. Let me ask you, Christian, do you believe that this evening? That, That all that God has done in your life so far, And everything that you see going on and all that he has said in his word as a reflection and outflow of who he is and what he's accomplishing is upright. And what he says about it is just. Do you believe that? This is where we get kind of uncomfortable, isn't it? Because our experience oftentimes is difficult to reconcile that with. That whatever God decides is right. That whatever God does, He does with perfect justice and equity. Oh, may we nail our feet to these convictions. Psalm 19, verse 9, says this much as well The judgments of the Lord are true, they are righteous altogether. Uh, Dear friend, have you ever been tempted to argue with God, you know, like you do when you're watching your sports, I just almost said sports show, it's, it's not a sports show, your favorite team playing and the ref makes a terrible call and you're just yelling at the TV, ever see those people? Maybe you're one of those people. Like, are you ever tempted to do that with God? Remember, God is always right. He's righteous. His character is always righteous, and His decisions, His judgments are always righteous, His his conclusions. But third, notice that because the character of God is righteous, not only are His conclusions righteous but also His commands. Look at what He says in the next verse, "'You have commanded...' your testimonies in righteousness and exceeding faithfulness. Look, here is, in, as in other places, um, our translations have tried to smooth out the original text, but I think it's better to read the first line here quite literally saying, you have commanded righteousness, comma, your testimonies. In other words, the point here the psalmist is making is that righteousness, listen, is not only who God is, not only what He decides, but righteousness is what God has commanded. It's what He's told us to do. It's what He's told us to obey. It's what He's required of us in His testimonies. But not only do God's decisions reflect His righteous character, but so do His commands. Both the judgments He renders and the obedience He requires are rooted in His very own righteousness. To put even more simply, what God does and what God demands are both grounded in who God is. Okay, what God does, His decisions, and what God demands, His commands, are both grounded in who God is, His character. Do you believe that is about his commands, that they're righteous? I think of Romans chapter 7, verse 12. You know, even even in a section and in a context where Paul is trying to teach us that the law, his commands, God's commands, they uh, they weren't sufficient to impart to us even this righteousness. And yet, he says, the law is holy the commandment is holy and righteous and good. And it'll go on to say, well, where's the problem? The problem is with us. <laughs> but guys, God's commands are righteous. And we may kick against them. We might struggle under them. We might think, man, that's, man, that just seems really difficult. But take it to the bank. Just like God's character, they're Righteous is this your perspective of God's law and His commandments? I mean, are you ever tempted to conclude that the standard of God's commandments are just too burdensome or oppressive or they're just unfair? Are you ever tempted to complain about how unreasonable His demands are? If ever that is you, remember this, His commandments are righteous. And notice what the psalmist adds here in the second line regarding God's commands, they are given in exceeding faithfulness. In other words, not only God's commands righteous, but they're also utterly reliable, faithful, and true. Here with this language, the psalmist ushers us back into the divine courtroom where God is not only the judge who renders a verdict, but He's also the witness who offers His testimony. And anytime, listen, God is on the witness stand, His testimony is always trustworthy, always. Again, is this how you receive His commands? What do you think of all that God has required of you in Scripture? All that He has told you to do, all that He has called you to obey, all that He has called you to conform your life to, do you affirm God's commandments as righteous and faithful, or do you question whether they're truly just and reliable? You see, what we believe about God and His righteousness will inevitably affect our attitude towards His commandments, I think. Right? That was, that was revealed to us in the garden when Eve... Had that seed of doubt planted in her mind by the serpent that caused her to think, you know what God? God is, you know, God is not good or just to to withhold this from us. And she began to question God's character, the one who gave the command. See so what we believe about God and His essential nature then affects what, how we view His commands. It will either encourage or discourage our obedience to them. Listen to this helpful illustration by John Phillips. He says this, In the halls of American Congress, one finds two kinds of people, the legislators and the lobbyists. The politician is there to make the laws. The pressure groups are there to influence those laws, to see that the only laws passed are the ones that particularly, their particular group wants. Thus, it is with our laws All too often, instead of being righteous and faithful, they simply reflect the interest of whichever side can bring the most pressure to bear on politicians. Have you seen that happen? God's laws are not like that. He is not swayed by public opinion. He's not running for office. God's laws are righteous and faithful. They are impartial, imperial, and impeccable. It's a good illustration. So, may we be able to sing with Moses in Deuteronomy 32 verse 4 this, Then call that God, His work is perfect for all His ways are just, a God of faithfulness and without injustice, righteous and upright is He. Christian, may we hold fast to this confession that God is righteous in Himself. Essentially, so that we might trust His decisions and obey His commands. So, the righteousness of God is essential. But notice the second truth moving on to 139 to 141 then. We see now the reality that the righteousness of God in our present existence and age is controversial. It's controversial. Notice the next three verses. We see this in spades. The author, the psalmist, describes his experience here. He says, my zeal has consumed me because my adversaries have forgotten your words. Your word is very pure, therefore your servant loves it. I'm small and despised, yet I do not forget your precepts. Notice in this section how the major contrast is between the psalmist and his enemies here, which is why I say the righteousness of God is controversial. And first, it's controversial because in a fallen world, look, the reality is many people just disregard it. Notice in verse 139, My zeal has consumed me because my adversaries have forgotten your words. Like here the psalmist describes his own righteous zeal for the righteous standard of God, and that's that's actually a very controversial standard that he's taking because there are many who simply disregard that standard. In the previous stanza, he declared, the psalmist, my eyes shed streams of water because they do not keep your law. Well, here he demonstrates that his passion and his zeal to see God's Word upheld and honored went beyond his own obedience to it and stretched to his desire even for those around him to live righteously also. Let me ask you, beloved, do you… Do you do you love God's righteousness so much that it burdens you to know that His law is being violated every day all around you? Is that a zeal for God's righteousness that you have burning in your heart? In the psalmist's day, as in our day, the righteousness of God had fallen on hard times, and it really bothered him, does it bother you? The word here for zeal describes a holy jealousy, a righteous passion. Zeal, as one writer said, is a holy warmth whereby our love and anger are drawn out to the utmost for God and His glory. And that kind of zeal, of course, is typified. It was exemplified in our Savior in John chapter 2, you remember? What happened in John 2? What did Jesus do the first time? He did it twice. Come on. Tim, you know. What did he do? He cleansed the temple. Yeah, and, and, the, and, and the commentary there, as he drove the money changers out of the temple, the disciples remembered that it is written Psalm 69, verse 9 their zeal for your house has consumed me. It's the same language almost the exact same phrase here it's the same kind of zeal that's found in the psalmist and in fact notice what notice what it was that provoked the psalmist here he tells us in the second line because my adversaries have forgotten your words you see his zeal wasn't because of personal injury or insult which is oftentimes What gets us all worked up, right? How could they they do that to me? You know, someone cuts you off in the road. (laughs) Righteous anger, right? Probably not. No, his zeal wasn't out to defend his own glory or reputation or comfort. Rather, he could not tolerate the fact, as Jesus could not, that so many were disregarding the righteousness of God. By the way, to be clear, he's not upset, don't misunderstand the language here, he's not upset that people didn't have a good memory, okay, that's, so, forgot your law. Um, Actually, one of my um, mentors, the late Dr. Zemek, reminds us in his commentary that to forget very rarely refers to a loss of memory in the Old Testament, but almost always points to a culpable disregard of someone or something. That's the language. He's not mad at amnesia, right? He's he's, he's upset. He's zealous that these people deliberately disregard God's law. They act like God never said it. Let me ask you, what provokes controversy in you? What provokes controversy in you more when you see others disagree with your personal preferences or your politics, or when you see them disregard God's righteous law. Uh, Plumer adds this then, true zeal is for God's glory, not our own. It grieves far more for His dishonor than for our sufferings. It readily forgives wrongs done to ourselves, but it is jealous for the Lord of hosts. And then Calvin can say, we are too we are too tender, I love the way he puts this, listen to this, we are too tender and delicate in bearing wrongs, and hence it is that if we are but touched with a finger, <laughs> we are instantly inflamed with anger, whilst at the same time we are but coldly affected the most grievous offenses committed against God. Well, brothers and sisters, may we leave personal offenses behind and instead adopt the zeal that the psalmist had here for God's righteous standard. But notice next how this same zeal for God's Word and righteousness is not just provoked when others disregard it, but more positively, look at what he says in verse 140. More positively, he has this zeal because verse 140 says, God's Word is very pure. Notice, your Word is very pure, therefore your servant loves it. You see, that's why. Now, he peels back the onion and says, this is why it matters so much to me. You know, again, some people love controversy for the sake of controversy. You know people like that. They're willing to fight the most trivial things That's not the psalmist here. The psalmist's passion was principled. He knew exactly which hill to die on. Notice why the psalmist is willing to make the righteousness of God a point of contention and controversy. Notice why. He has such zeal and love for God's righteous Word because it is very pure. The language is that of a precious metal that has been tested in a refiner's fire. We've seen this idea already back in uh, chapter, uh, well, same chapter. (laughs) Uh, Feels like it should be multiple chapters, but we've seen it back in verse 127. The psalmist has referred to God's commandments as being better than gold, yes, above fine gold. It's the same image there. At here, the point is similar, but now with the reference not just to value, but to its purity and its perfection. In other words, the point is that there are no impurities to be found in God's Word. It's by this description, the psalmist says the Word is absolutely perfect without dross of vanity and fallibility which runs through human writings, one, one author says, the more we try the promises, the surer we shall find them. So I love what's, how Spurgeon puts it here. It is, it is, God's word is truth distilled, holiness in its quintessence. In the word of God, there is no admixture of error or sin. It is pure in its sense, pure in its language, pure in its spirit, pure in its influence, and all this to the very highest degree. The Proverbs 30, verse 5, every word of God is tested. Psalm 12, verse 6, the words of the Lord are pure words, as silver tried in a furnace on the earth, refined seven times. Like beloved, this, this is why the psalmist had such tremendous zeal and love for God's word of righteousness. Not just because it told him what he wanted to hear, nor simply because of what it could do for him, though it could do much, but because at its core, it is pure, unmixed, unalloyed truth. Is that why you love the Word of God? Let me ask you, is that why you're here tonight? Is that why you pay attention to preaching John Phillips says, the psalmist loved God's Word because it was so pure. He could drink in God's Word without fear of contamination. I love that. Such certainty cannot be said about the writings of the world's false religions, which of, uh, many of which are polluted at, its, at their source. Friends, let us forget about controversy over lesser things. May we be known for our zeal for God's truth, not man's tradition. Notice finally here in verse one forty one how the psalmist's zeal was undeterred by his even by his own suffering experience of suffering. He says, "I am small and despised, yet I do not forget your precepts." You see, this this here is proof of the sincerity of his love for the righteousness of God. It persisted even when it was unpopular and even when it cost him greatly. Look, let's be honest. Part of the reason why God's absolute righteousness is controversial in this life, even among believers sometimes, is because our experience in a fallen world is, as I said earlier, it's, it's hard to reconcile that, to read verse 137 and then to go look at what's happening to Israel right now right? Or even to be there in Israel. That was certainly the case for the psalmist at the time of his writing. The righteousness of God is controversial in this life. But the language of being small and despised here refers to the persecution and disdain that the psalmist received. He was lightly esteemed, Considered irrelevant by the world. He was unpopular and repulsive in the company of those who dismissed God's word. No doubt he was treated as an outcast, viewed and scorned and insulted as a bigot. Is this not the lot of those who love purity in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation? Have you experienced these things before? And what is the next thought? The temptation is to say, God, I thought you were righteous. I thought all that you did was just. And here, great injustices are being perpetrated on your people. Yet, these are those who seek first Christ's kingdom and righteousness, who forget not God's precepts, even when they suffer. What a testimony! What a testimony! Or as Calvin put it, they are those, these are those who seek not their reward on earth, but through heat and cold, poverty and danger, slanders and mockeries, persevere with unwearied steps in the course of their warfare. Look, let's be clear and honest. The righteousness of God is controversial among men in this fallen world. It is. It's despised by many, and it's difficult to see without the eyes of faith. But notice the psalmist lands on his feet here. Lastly, the third point up there, the third truth, third reality, verses 142 through 144, the psalmist affirms that in spite of what life looks like in the moment, the truth of the matter is the righteousness of God is eternal. He says, your righteousness is an everlasting righteousness, and your law is truth. Trouble and anguish have come upon me, yet your commandments are my delight. Your testimonies are righteous forever. Give me understanding that I may live. And I notice first that the, the righteousness of God is eternal, in both His work and His Word. Look at verse 142. He says, Your righteousness is an everlasting righteousness, and your law is truth. Now, in the first line there, I would argue for the translation, your righteous works are righteousness forever. Um, It's kind of a difficult thing to translate, but in other words, there, there, there have been plenty of instances, think about this, in, in which men have acted one way in time past, thinking that they were doing right, only to look back on their circumstances years later to realize, to their dismay, that what was appropriate then is no longer agreeable now. And that's dug up and thrust in their face, right, sometimes. But what God does is what God does in righteousness, here is asserted, will always be righteousness forever. That's the point here, for His acts proceed from His nature and He is eternally righteous. His righteousness will not change. The standard of righteousness does not bend the farther down the road of eternity you get. In the end, no one will will ever be able to accuse God of any injustice. Listen, think about this. Regarding anything and the unfolding of His redemptive plan and purpose. Think about that. Do you know what that includes? now, your life, now, all the difficulties, now, all the tragedies, now. The righteousness of God is eternal in all His work. Do you believe that? The psalmist asserts that. The psalmist affirms that. But the same, listen, could be said not, a, not just of His works, but of all His Word as well. Notice the second line here, and your law is truth. One writer says, not only righteous, the first giving out, but righteous in all ages and times. In the world... Thomas Manton says this, In the world, the new lords, new laws. Men vary and change their designs and purposes. Privileges granted today may be repealed tomorrow, but this word will hold true forever. Isn't that sweet? Friends, you can, you can bank on it. What, what God says is right today has been right in all eternity and will be right for all eternity. Friends, the timeless principles found in Scripture will hold true forever. Never will there ever be found to be anything false about what God has revealed to us in Holy Scripture. You don't have to fear that they're going to unearth the missing link in Darwinian evolution. (laughs) You don't have to fear that. His Word is is forever true. His law is truth. If you want, think about this then, if you want to always be right, then always agree with the Word of God. The righteousness of God is eternal in all His work and all His Word. But notice next how in verse 143, how the eternal nature of God's righteousness then provides the psalmist with transcendent joy beyond his circumstances. Look at verse 143. Look, from that truth, the psalmist now reasons and interprets his experience. Okay, not the other way around. Okay, let's not be backwards here. From the conviction of verse 142, we reason. Notice 143, trouble and anguish have come upon me, yet your commandments are my delight. Both terms, trouble and anguish, have connotations of pressure, stress, constraint, narrow straits, confining circumstances. This is what the psalmist experienced. In fact, here the language is that such experiences, the verb is literally have found me, it's like that hide-and-seek language, right? They're coming after me, and they, and they, and they found me. <laughs> they are trouble and anguish. They are personified here as having tracked and hunted down the psalmist. Distress is my hound. What an appropriate picture of life in a fallen world, isn't it? Like, how many of you have tried to hide from difficulties in life? You know, you can't do that. You know, so often we spend all of our time trying to hide and avoid such things, and in vain we often seek to throw off the scent, as it were, of trouble and anguish, but when instead, notice, you know what you should be doing? The psalmist says we should be running after God's Word. Don't 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 hide. Don't make it your life's ambition to hide from all the trouble. If I could just lock myself in quarantine myself in my basement. Maybe nothing bad will happen to me. Maybe I'll finally have joy. Look, that's not how that works. The psalmist says, "Don't don't spend your time uselessly trying to flee from these things which will find you in the end, rather spend your time delighting in God's Word. Look, the implication here is that trouble in anguish will eventually find you if you live long enough, but my friend, you can still have joy. You can still have peace in those circumstances if your delight is in God's unchanging and eternal Word, that's that's the logic the psalmist has here. You can be like Paul, who is sorrowful yet always rejoicing, 2 Corinthians 6 verse 10. If you anchor your soul to that which does not change, God's eternal Word, That's what the psalmist did, and it provided him with transcendent joy in the midst of his trials. Finally, notice how the eternal nature of God's righteous Word also provides sufficient wisdom. In verse 144, not just transcendent joy, but sufficient wisdom. Look at what he says, "'Your testimonies are righteous forever.'" Give me understanding that I may live. Consider the reasoning of the psalmist here with me. Because God's righteous Word is eternal, what the psalmist asked for in his prayer was not, listen, was not um, new circumstances. It wasn't even more revelation. Revelation. Did you notice what it was? Rather more understanding and insight into what was already revealed. Because God's Word is eternal, God's Word is sufficient. So Plumer can say what we need for life and for liveliness in God's work is not more Scripture but more knowledge of what has been already revealed. And Matthew Henry agrees, what is revealed we should desire to understand and what we know to know better. So, because God's righteous work and word is eternal, look, we can, Christian, you can have transcendent joy in your earthly trials and sufficient wisdom for your earthly circumstances. That's what the psalmist testifies here for us. The righteousness of God is eternal. Okay, so uh, those those are the truths we learn from this stanza. The righteousness of God is essential. What do we mean by that? We mean that it is who God is in His very character, and from that, His Word is, is also righteous, his decisions, his commands. Number two, the righteousness of God is controversial in our present day and age, right? You look out on the world, it is difficult externally and internally at times. We wrestle, don't we, to affirm God, you are just in all your dealings when we live in a fallen world. And then lastly, the righteousness of God we must affirm is eternal. It's not going to change. It is forever.